0: And thank you for joining us today. Now, I'm really happy to introduce the new seminar series of PGR. It's uh, We changed setting. I think this one is much more pleasant than we used to be. Definitely bigger. Um, I hope you also enjoyed the small changes that we introduced at the beginning. Um, I just want to say a couple of words. I'm happy to see old faces, new faces. Uh, so I'm going to say a couple of words about our group, for those of you that don't know us yet. Uh, We are a research group based at the Centre for Criminology, we deal with issues of uh, transition from uh, society that deal with war and massive human rights violations to peace and democracy, these issues of justice, truth, reconciliation, reparation. Um, And we are an interdisciplinary group, we want to keep people together from all sorts of disciplines. I am a lawyer myself, I have many friends in my group. I come from all sorts of faculties, so if you come from somewhere else, thank you for being with us today. This is definitely the place that you want to be. Um, we have a seminar, series running throughout the entirety of the term, uh, now always on Monday at lunchtime. So there will always be sandwiches outside for you to grab one and go. Uh, if you come here and enjoy our seminars, there are many ways to get involved in our activities even more. We do a lot of things. Um, our whole new committee will be built uh, within three weeks more or less and uh, we will send out an application, a call for applications around uh, the end of week two. Uh, so if you enjoy our activities we have uh, many other things such as um, an editorial team that works on anything, um, articles for uh, an online article, justinfo.net that we build together with the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and a Swiss foundation of journalists called Fondationia Rondelle. We organize workshops, seminars and uh, many, many events. So please, if you have any question, approach me. At the end of the seminar, I don't want to take up too much time because I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. We have the pleasure of having with us uh, Ziv Boer from uh, the University of Bairland. Ziv Boer uh, has a PhD from Tel Aviv University where he worked with uh, Ben Benisti. Um, and he's been a visiting research scholar at the University of Michigan and a research fellow at the Sakhir Institute of the Hebrew University. He has written extensively on issues of international criminal law, international humanitarian law, but I think his most recent research deals with...
1: My passion.
0: Oh, actually, <laughs> Isn't the passion. It's a term that I would like to use in my research as well, I'm not sure I can do it all the time. Uh, but if you're lucky enough to have this passion, it will deal with the long-forgotten and long, apparently, history uh, of international criminal justice before World War II, which is something that I had never heard before, so I'm as eager as you are probably to hear uh, this fascinating presentation, uh, hence the title of today's presentation, which is called uh, "Nuremberg was not the first international criminal tribunal by a long shot. Please join me in thanking our guests today.
1: Is it okay that I'll stand because being so far, far away from you seems a bit hard to me? So, international criminal law, everybody knows, was born at Nuremberg after World War II. Now, there are two versions to that accepted history. The first version goes like that. Until World War II, there was one international crime, and that's piracy. Pirates (coughs) were enemies of mankind. Or international outlaws, disturbers of the peace, enemies of the peace, all others are synonyms of the term enemy of mankind. And therefore, there was universal jurisdiction. And that was the only international crime until uh, post World War II. And then, because uh, the Allies wanted to prosecute the Nazis and they committed their crimes all around, they took that doctrine. From piracy, did copy paste and put it and applied it to uh, perpetrators of core international crimes, meaning war criminals, perpetrators of crimes against humanity, and perpetrators of aggression, meaning crimes against the peace. Before that, with the exception of pirates, international law only addressed states, not individuals. Right? That's one version of the story. There's a second version. The second version says what was unique about Nuremberg is that it's the first time that an international criminal tribunal was created. Before that, we only had domestic tribunals, and occasionally these domestic tribunals prosecuted war criminals. But what's unique about Nuremberg and then Tokyo is That's the first time they created an international criminal tribunal with judges from different states. What we are going to do in this presentation is to try, or I'll argue that I'm refuting, both of these versions. Now, if you open any international criminal law book, it would start with saying, there are some pre-World War II precedents. And they would usually list these six. The, the the trial of Conradin, king of Jerusalem, who Jerusalem. wanted to be also the King of Sicily, but the Pope didn't allow him. So when he loses the war, he is tried for crime against the peace. Right? He has started a war in violation of the Yusuf, Bel- of, Yusuf Bel- of the time. The second case is William Wallace's case, who is tried for crimes against the law of God of men, which is the the then term for for international law. The next case is Petel von Hagenbach, who was appointed a governor of a city that his uh, sovereign conquered, and his soldiers committed atrocities against the city citizens. And after the, his, his uh, sovereign loses the war, he gets prosecuted. And what's unique about the case is that he gets prosecuted by a tribunal of several pre So some argue that that is also a precedent for not only the first version of the story, but also the second version of the story. The third case is Napoleon. After he escapes Alba and starts the war again, the allies of the time issue a proclamation saying he has violated treaties and opened a a war of aggression. So that's the fourth case, and then the liberal Code, also often going to be the best moment of, modern, of the modern law of war, and lastly, after World War I, there is an attempt to create international criminal tribunals for the prosecution of German war criminals and the Kaiser, and in the Treaty of Versailles, there is an agreement to create these tribunals, but they are never created. And everybody agreed that, that that failure is the precedent that was relied upon in World War II. So what I I'll I try to show is continuity until World War I. Now, after you have that paragraph presenting in this case, six cases, you always have a, a paragraph like that. So I'm a wishful thinker, a delusional wishful thinker, right? It's essentially the product of Isis' protagonists' desire to give historical substance. They are not connected. So what we are going to do in in the first third of this presentation is to show that the same doctrine was applied in all six commonly mentioned cases. So, is version one correct? What I've done in a bit of self promotion, in that extremely long paper, I trace the doctrine of enemy and of mankind, of international authors, and show that it was used from late medieval times onward. Look, I have a secret memor- memorandum of the Americans from 1944 regarding the trial of war criminals by a mixed inter-allied military, tribu- military tribunals. How would these tribunals would be called later? Nirenberg and Tokyo. That's the memorandum that led to the creation of Nirenberg and Tokyo. And look what, they, what the memorandum said. It is fundamental in considering this question to bear in mind that for the past century at least, War criminals have been referred as enemies of mankind, post- semini, generis, and outlaws. No copy-paste after World 101 from piracy. They are talking about, for the past century at least, and giving precedents. Moreover, it's really hard to read in the original text, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's actually not century. The the emphasis is on the at least. It's from the late Middle Ages. And that's it. Look, first of all, the use of outlaw was already not, it's not post-World War II, it's during World War II. That's a quote from the London Times in 1939. Moving to World War One, a group of pilots is bombing indiscriminately in Russia, in Petrograd. The Russian catch catch, catch these uh, German uh, uh, pilots, and what is the act called? Act of piracy, and they are referred to as outlaws. Now, one clarification. In all these cases, I'm going to show you the use of the term outlaws. In the article, I show also reliance on the term enemies of mankind. Simply, in these six famous cases, for some reason, the most visual uh, evidence is one that uses the term outlaws. I have other sources that rely on the enemies of mankind, okay? okay? This guy, does anybody recognize this? this guy over there in the black bag? Over his head. Does anyone recognize the, the place? Where is it? Yes. And do you recognize the, the device? That's an execution, people. And the guy, the guy over there is Felix. The most famous war criminal of the American Civil War. He was the head of the Andrewsville POW camp and they simply abused the prisoners. The term deadline was in when invented there, because they had no, no, not enough fences at a certain point, so they drew a line in the sand and told the prisoners, if you cross the line, you're dead. That's how the term deadline was invented. Now, Wilt is referred to in his trial as an auto? And you find books saying that Williams was the only American Civil War case, and that's not true. Estimates go that the North prosecuted about between 1,000 to 4,000 Southerners for war, crime, for war crimes, and about 1,000 Northerners. The South is hard to know because the records got burned, but we know that they prosecuted several hundreds, at least. Moving to Napoleon, remember, enemy of the peace is a synonym of auto, and in the declaration after he escapes, immediately they declare that he is an international auto, an enemy and disturber of the tranquility of the world, meaning an international auto, meaning an enemy of mankind. William Wallace. Now, what's nice, one of the dilemmas of international criminal law is that the punishment never fits the crime. In ancient times, they had a way to make the, the punishment fit the crime. They would nearly kill you in various ways, and each way was to signify a different crime that you committed. This is why, in the end of the movie, all you see is, he is lying on a, on a table and, 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 uh, and a flower drops from his he- hand because nobody wants to see that. He was drawn for treason, hanged for robbery, disemboweled for sacrilege, beheaded, I assume that that's the moment he died, as an outlaw and quartered... So, Now, this is one of my nicest achievements. Peter von Heilenbach, the most, the most reliable source regarding his trial, is a series of ballads in ancient German, written in Gothic German, really hard to comprehend. But I found the diary of the chaplain of Basel Cathedral, and he reports reports about the trial and he reports that they prosecuted, they decided to sentence him to death for tyranny and other crimes. Why is tyranny important? Tyranny is the first crime in Roman law. Tyrants are the first one in Roman law to be referred to as enemies of mankind. Lastly, here's this nice boy, between 14 and 17, depending on on which source you read, and when Conard Dean, or conrad the Young is caught, his sentence to the sentence of death was declared against him as a disturber of the public peace. In other words, in all these cases, the same doctrine was applied, and it's the same doctrine that was applied to pirates. So it's wrong to assume that these cases are unconnected. Moreover, they are not far far between. There are many other cases. I'm gonna give you just one, because it's my favorite. You see this fearful guy? The one that is being stabbed? That's John the Fearless. Now, John the Fearless, a bit afraid in, the, in this picture, is having a war with the successor to the French throne. Now, the successor is inviting him for truce negotiations, and in these negotiations, he assassinates John the Fearless. That act is a war crime even today, it's a formal perfidy. Look how was it defined at that time. Now, it took me to go to a Latin source to find that, it took me to find the French source to see that the perpetrators were defi- described as international outlaws. Now, meet this guy. This is one of the guys stabbing John the Fearless. His name is Barbassan. Henry, the English king, is a friend of John the who was the Duke of Burgundy. After John the is assassinated, Henry joins the war. Now, he captures some of the perpetrators of the assassination and prosecutes them. Now, that's, that's universal jurisdiction, because the act was committed while he was not part of the war. We'll return to that guy in a moment. Now, the history becomes even more hard. It's not only war crimes, and it's not only piracy. The fact is that until the 19th century, all felonies, meaning murder, arson, rape, robbery, theft, were regarded as international crimes and their perpetrators as, as international authors and enemies of mankind. And in most of Europe, universal jurisdiction was applied to felonies. In the sense that if a person committed murder in Germany or in Italy, and both terms are incorrect because Germany and Italy war. So we have to take somebody something that did in Spain. Okay, somebody committed a murder in Spain and ran away to Netherlands If they cannot extradite him, if they couldn't extradite him back to Spain, they would prosecute him for murder in the Netherlands. And I have even few cases in which England joined this procedure, but common law courts could only prosecute if it was also a violation of of the king's peace. So what would they do? They would transfer the case to the military courts. Either the Admiralty Court or the military courts and it would be prosecuted in an English military court. Let's move to the second version of the story. I, by the way, are there any questions a bit here? I hope I succeeded to convince you a bit in that version. So let's move to the version of, is the tribunal of Nuremberg the first time an international tribunal was created? This is what I'm working on now, to find, to excavate all these past cases of international criminal tribunals. And and I'm using the term international loosely, because a state, the the state, is a social construct that changed over time, and, and its current form is rather new. It's 19th century. So, international, the term, I'm using it loosely because the notion of states changed over time. So, to remind you, even today there are two cases that are, pre-World War II cases, that are acknowledged. One is Peter von Hagerbach, but people say 500 years difference between that and Nilenberg, we cannot consider it a precedent. The other is the failed attempt after World War I, but they are saying, okay, that served as a precedent, but it's still a failed attempt, so it's not a complete precedent. Meet Peter von Hagenbach. That's his maver- mummified mm-hmm. head. I'm presenting it with the permission of the Kormaui Museum. His case was not the only case, medieval case. Remember this guy? So, Dave king sentences, sentences him to death. What do you think, Baba? Sounds liked that sentence? What can he do? The king sentences him to death. Can he do anything? Now, the law of war that got him his life back is the weirdest medieval law of war ever. Baba son and the English king fought one against the other in a cave, and it ended in a draw. That meant that they became brothers in arms and cannot kill each other. Weird, but <laughs> still a law of war. Now, for Barba Sainz, significance, significant. It's true that he, was, he got life imprisonment, but 12 years later he got released, which wouldn't have happened if he, were, was, he would have been executed. Now, there, there, is a, there are several uh, issues in which even the practice of international tribunals was common. One of them is the field of truth tribunals. So two warring parties are signing a truth agreement. Now they want to enforce it. They do not want that any viola- small violation. Some soldier fighting a soldier on the other side would, would, would re- reinstigate the war. So there were, two, there were three ways to enforce such a truce. One was to send a judge of yours to the territory of the other side, to prosecute your soldiers that commit truth violations on the other side. So it's not an international tribunal, but quite a transnational arrangement. The two others, we can refer to them as as international tribunals. One is to delegate a third party that would prosecute soldiers from both sides for violating the truth. Can we agree that that's an international tribunal? And the other form is to create a tribunal with judges from both sides to prosecute jointly violated laws of the truth from both sides. And Kin, the leading historian of the late medieval law of war, says the the opposition was much like that of modern international courts. Now, in early modern times... Ah, There was also a more uh, organized or institutionalized form of these two reunions, not ad hoc, but more permanent, and that is in the form of marshes. Marshes were border areas, and there were two kinds of marshes. It was either region jointly run by the two sides, okay, or There were two marshes, one, for example, English, and other Scottish, but crimes that crossed the borders were enforced by truth-day tribunals. The most famous of this kind were here in, in Britain, in the marshes of Scotland and England. But there were also between Wales and England, and there were also in France, Now when we go to early modern times, we have a gradual, an extremely gradual process of the changing of the concept of borders, from a border being a region, a marsh, to a border being a line like we know today. That's a process that starts in the 17th century and ends deep into the 19th century. In that process, what we see is that both forms of truth truth tribunals disappear, to be more exact, change. So the ad hoc tribunals, I still find few examples of them in 17th century uh, treaties, but a more common practice is to appoint Judge Convier. Judge Convier is some mixture of the ways that I referred to before, because how does it work? Merchants of, like, English merchants choose a judge, let's say it's a truce with or peace with Portugal, so choose a Portuguese judge, and he is the only judge that is allowed to prosecute them for crimes they commit in Portugal. So it's not an international tribunal, but it's a rather transnational arrangement As for marshes, they disappear, but we what appears is, is some, some cases of barrier regions. Barrier regions are regions that are run by several powers together. For example, the Dutch barrier is run, which is in Belgium of today, is run by the English and the Dutch, even though the sovereign is Austrian. And later it's run by the Dutch and the French, even though the sovereign is Austrian. Another issue in which you find many, many international tribunals is the issue of alliances. If we fight together, and my soldier commits a crime against your soldier, a joint tribunal would prosecute uh, that soldier. And in some cases, like in the case of von Hagenbach, similar tribunal would be used to prosecute prisoners of law that committed war crimes. So look how many. And when we move to early modern times, it continues. There are examples even from the 19th century. We'll get to them. So in that sense, that is a continuous practice. And just to give you here, to give you the others. That's not a typical example, that's the oddest example. So, a holy alliance is formed of few Italian princes, the principalities, the Pope, and Spain to fight the Turkish Empire and pirates in the Mediterranean. Now, the Spanish king is afraid that the faith, the Christian faith of his soldiers, will get corrupted by fighting with the Italians. So they point an international tribunal, an international tribunal, to, f, to 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 prosecute soldiers that commit heresy-related crimes, like fornication, like gambling, like violating the Sabbath, like the or um, another category of crimes they prosecute is the case of Christian sh- soldiers that fight for the Turks. When they capture them as POWs, they prosecute them for heresy in that International Tribunal. And that International Tribunal was declared to have universal jurisdiction. No matter where the crime was committed, that, that tribunal could... Here's a more normal example. Close to home. After William wins the glorious Revolution, the French are a bit dissatisfied, and they attempt to assassinate William. Now, the person that paid the English assassins, the French person that paid the English assassins, is captured. Now, that form of assassination, paying a citizen of another country to assassinate a leader of that country, according to many scholars, is a war crime even today. The, the legal position of the time is that you cannot prosecute that person in a common law court because that person did not violate the king's peace. He, can't, he came to this country in times of war. He never attempted to enter the king's peace. So he's prosecuted in the military system by a court-martial of English, Dutch, and French officers. And that's 1692. 1692. Now this is the example that I that most people never agree with. So I'm gonna try to convince you and I hope that I succeed. Tell me, what was the Holy Roman Empire? The answer is depends on who you ask, and depend uh, depends on who you ask them. Both at that time, meaning during the time that the Holy Roman Empire existed, And today, if you ask different people, they'll give you different answers. What's important for me is that, especially in the 18th century, the Holy Roman Empire was perceived, the accepted view of it was of an alliance of sovereigns. Now, over that alliance of sovereigns, there were two imperial courts. Now, these courts had jurisdiction on various crimes. Among them, aggression, and tyranny, which is, which is what we refer to today as crimes against humanity, similar acts. And on average, they deposed a sovereign every six years. Can you imagine the ICC deposing a sovereign every six years? Now, in the 19th century... These tribunals have served as inspiration for proposals to create for the creation of international criminal courts. If you take proposals for the creation of a permanent international criminal court and trace them back, you, in the end, find someone that has relied on the imperial tribunals, including, by the way, Moimov, that is always said to be the inventor of uh, the idea of permanent international criminal court. If you go to his sources, you'll see that in the end, he relies on sources that rely on sources that have relied on the precedent of the, of the Holy Roman Empire. But you say all that is good and well. Let's talk modern times. The state we are, I already mentioned is to a considerable degree a 19th century creation. Surely, in the 19th century, Onward, there was no International Criminal Tribunal. And if you have a gap of 150 years, that's a sufficient gap, right? Well, I'm not the first to find in the 19th century examples for International Criminal Tribunals. There are several scholars, these are the leading ones, and I'm going to criticize them even though I support their I, I My argument is that they have not gone far enough in their argument, and I'll show why. So let's begin with the tribunals that they themselves uncovered. So the Boxer Rebellion is a colonialist war, but it's an also it, it is also a humanitarian intervention to prevent the massacre of 30,000 Christian, Chinese Christians, and 200 foreigners by the boxers. Look how the acts of the boxers are were well described at the time. In a joint note of 11 states. Crimes against the law of humanity and crimes against the law of nations. Anybody knows what's the myth today about the, when was the term crimes against humanity invented? in the Armenian Massacre in 1914. That's 14 years earlier. And no worries, that's not the first case. I have sources from the 16th century, using the term "crimes in the Now, some of the perpetrators of these crimes were prosecuted at pulsing foul by a military tribunal of British, German, Italian, and French judges. Here is a news report from the time. The International Commission sentenced to death. That's an international tribunal. The other case that they uncovered, there are anti-Christian riots in Crete in and the powers of Europe, the powers of the, of the European Council, counter, create and prosecute the perpetrators of the atrocities against the local Christians in an international military commission. Now, the paper that wrote about that commission assumed that that, that it was a, a ad hoc thing that that tribunal only survived in 1898. It actually continued to prosecute people until the end of the occupation in the in nineteen oh nine. And this is a picture from nineteen oh nine that I got permission from the from the Museum of Athens to use of the tribunal. Another tribunal that they uncovered is a tribunal a, a French Siamese tribunal of an Eastern Dance between La, Laos conquered France and Thailand, of an action, we would call to their violation of truth or perfidy, and it was prosecuted in a joint tribunal. Now they refer. Here is my criticism. They refer to their own cases, the cases that they themselves excavate as experiment, nessen, initial actions for. But look. Remember the tribunal in in China? Five years before the Boxer War, there there was the vegetarians' riot who massacred uh, some uh, missionaries. And two two international tribunals were set to prosecute perpetrators. British, American, and Chinese judges. Now, notice that that some of the Chinese judges are in a... Relatively humiliating position. They are set low in, in a lower, upon lower seats than the other, right? We'll get back to that. Now, when they are discussing what to do with the massacres in the, of the vegetarians' riots, look, a newspaper article is published proposing as precedent the the French Siamese tribunal that that, uh, was convened a year earlier. The same, during the Boxer War, they referred to the Great Precedent. So people at the time were aware of these different uh, tribunals. It's not that that each case is, is isolated. Going back in time to the Second Opium War and what we see again, a joint tribunal with French-English judges and, a chi- and Chinese judges that are forced to sit on lower benches. Moving to, mid- to closer home, to the Middle East. In 1882, there are anti-Christians. There's anti-colonialist and anti-Christian rebellion in in Cairo, and the British step in and conquer uh, Egypt. Initially, they are not presenting themselves as conquerors, but as allies of the government. And at that time, they create a joint tribunal to prosecute the perpetrators. Now look what is the charge. Having in violation of the right of war, meaning a war crime. Right of war meaning law of war. Now, that, these are the charges against the leader, Urbay Pasha. He, in the end, it's that guy, he, in the end, is prosecuted by an Egyptian military uh, tribunal, but others are prosecuted by the mixed tribunal. Okay, I intentionally gave these examples thus far because in order to show you another argument of them, saying it's an imperialistic practice. How much time do I have? Five minutes, minus one. But look! An incident between the Russians and the British, and they jointly create an international commission that decides that the Russian commander was innocent. But it's still, in, it's still an international criminal, criminal if they decide it's, he is innocent. Another incident, during World War <coughs> I, during an intervention in Russia, you have a tribunal of British, French, American, and Russian judges. Look how many more there are. This is the moment I knew that you are already going to be tired, so instead of giving a slight reach, look how many. So, why was this history forgotten? I'm going to leave that to the Q&A.